We're going to prepare now for the ministry of God's Word concerning the subject of God's generosity and ours. If you would please open in your Bibles to Ephesians, excuse me, Exodus, they look alike, Exodus chapter 20 and Ephesians chapter 4. And if you would, please stand. Exodus 20, one simple verse, verse 10, this is the word of God, thus saith the Lord, you shall not steal. Now please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And I'll actually begin our reading at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another." Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it stills us before you. We thank you the way that it surgically opens our hearts. And Jesus, the great physician, does a good work whenever his word is read and preached. And so we ask now that you'd be pleased to do that great work in us, that we would understand the generous heart of our God, and that we would desire to embody his generosity in our own lives, individually, in our families, and especially in our church. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I'd like to begin the sermon this evening on the subject of stealing and this eighth command not to steal by thinking first about uh, the three greatest heists in history, the three greatest episodes of thievery. Uh, In position... Number three, we will describe $282 million that were stolen in Baghdad, Iraq from the Dar es Salaam Bank. Little is known about it. It's unclear why the bank not only had so much money in it, but apparently a lot of the money that was there was American cash. The robbery took place in 2007 and was apparently orchestrated by a number of bank guards The government suspected that the robbers also had contact with local police and militia that allowed them to disappear rather seamlessly and even pass through checkpoints heading out of Baghdad, $282 million. Uh, But that is our third runner-up. Our second, $920 million, 
And I find it rather curious that it also was stolen from a bank in Iraq. So apparently there's a lesson here. If you want to rob a bank, apparently Iraq is the place that you need to go. In 2003, the day before the Iraq war began, uh, the Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein, of all people, sent his son to a bank there in the city with a handwritten note to supposedly withdraw $1 billion to keep it out of enemy hands, but rather stole the money and they ran off with it. And again, the money was never found. Those two are clear episodes of thievery, great highs from history. Uh, The third one, on the one hand, is an event that we all know very well, although the location is dubious. However, arguably, the greatest moment of thievery in human history happened in the Garden of Eden, when man first began to steal. And would you be surprised if I told you that there's even a small pool of scholars that believe that the Garden of Eden was in, of all places, Iraq? I'm not sure that that could actually be proven. (laughs) It's probably quite a stretch, but they're out there. And so there you have it. Now you have something to do later is try to figure out where the Garden of Eden actually was. But we're going to consider the three points that you have there on the back of your insert. Uh, That'll be our way of walking through the Eighth Commandment and considering why God hates stealing, why God loves giving, and why God loves a cheerful giver. This command is only two words in the Hebrew text. Uh, It comes into the English Bible, Thou shalt not steal. I'll say now and come back to it again. Uh, In many ways, it strikes at the heart of the Christian life when negatively practiced, that is, when Christians steal. And in a positive frame, it embodies the Christian life quite well when Christians give. The command here is framed in the negative. And if you've ever done a study on the Ten Commandments, you know already that when a command is stated in the negative, it implies the positive. And when it's stated in the positive, it implies the negative. So the command not to steal, as we'll come to in the third point, implies that we positively ought to give. But this is a prohibition. It comes to us in a negative framing. It comes to us with God forbidding us from stealing. And I want to explore with you for a few minutes a number of reasons why it is uh, that God not only forbade stealing, but that he actually hates it. God hates Thievery, robbery, God hates stealing. When he gives this command to his people Israel, it's right that he should do so because everything that the people of God had, everything that Israel had was a gift from God. At the very foundation, at the very baseline of this command is the principle that God gives his people everything that they have. That was true of them. It is true of you and it is true of me as well. Israel enjoyed land, and that land for them was a gift from God. On that land, they owned personal property. That property that they had was a gift from God. They owned possessions inside their houses, and everything that they had inside their house upon the land that God had given them, uh, even these things were gifts from his hand. And their very lives were a gift, because they were slaves in Egypt. And God, in a manner of speaking, purchased them, he redeemed them, he brought them out, and he gave them a land, property, possession. Ultimately, he gave them life. If you've done uh, much reflection on the very idea of the right to own property, arguably it is a creation ordinance. Arguably, it comes from the Bible itself. God gives to his people the ability to own property and possession, and this is something that is God-ordained. 
And so for these reasons, no one has the right, no image bearer has the right to take away from another bearer of God's image what God has given to them. In other words, if God put it into their hands, it is not my right to take it away, to steal it. No one has the right to steal. There is no justification for it in Scripture. No one had the right to take away another person's possessions. And even added to this command are all kinds of punishments. When the law is unpacked in subsequent chapters, there are actually a variety of different punishments for a variety of different types of ways that people ought to steal. If a man steals an ox or sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four for a sheep. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. So you cannot steal his ox or his sheep. You cannot steal his money or his goods. And Exodus twenty-one sixteen even highlights the value of life. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Perhaps one of the greatest illustrations and sad illustrations of thievery in the history of the world is that of slavery. Man-stealing is outright, outright forbidden by the Bible just as much as stealing a person's property, his money, his ox, his sheep. If those things are of value, how much more a person's life? And so the command comes to us in this negative framing, you shall not steal, and attended with it, are punishments, corrections, for those that do. Everything that Israel had was a gift from God, and no one had the right to steal God's gifts from his neighbor. There's another way of looking at this. Stealing was, in many ways, a violation of the Mosaic Covenant, as we just read, but it was also, uh, arguably, the first outward expression of sin. In other words, when in history did uh, sin first become visible? Well, it's when Adam actually sinned against God and in his thievery took of the forbidden fruit that God had commanded him not to sin. One could argue when we get to the 10th commandment and the command uh, there of not coveting is stated that Adam's sin began in his heart even before his hands began to reach. Already sin was at work within him and yet the visible manifestation of that coveting That sin on the inside took place when his hands reached out, and he did not simply take, he stole. He became a thief. He became, in some ways, like his not-father, the devil. He not only stole from God, he robbed God of his glory in a certain sense, or at least he tried to. And so the point that I'm attempting to make is that stealing, at its core, derives from what Adam did in the garden and is attached to an attempt to dethrone God from his throne, to rob God of his glory, to take from God his rightful ownership over all of creation. And when you think about it, uh, you might even say it like this, we don't own anything. Let me just kind of drill down to that thought. What do you actually own? Well, to prove that we don't own anything, one... Uh, What do you have that will not at some point be parted from you? Everything you can put your hands on, everything you can wrap a firm grip around, will at some point be taken from your grip. And even as regard things like 
property, there is a certain sense we might say uh, that the right uh, to property ownership is a biblical idea. And on the other hand, even that uh, is something that can easily be taken away. Many people, uh, if they are, are, are blessed and fortunate enough, might live long enough to pay off a house. And there's that wonderful thing, that wonderful event that people sometimes do uh, where they, uh, they burn their mortgage. I have not enjoyed this pleasure, and uh, having just moved to California two years ago, I will quite likely not live long enough. But it's okay. But even with that, there's something of an illusion in the idea of owning your own house. You can put it in air quotes. And to prove that you truly don't own it, try this. Stop paying your taxes. And then you'll find out who actually owns your house. But at a more serious level, it's God himself who owns all things. And that not by way of taxation, but by way of creation. All that exists in this world, God has made. And to steal is not simply to steal horizontally from our friends, uh, other image bearers. It's ultimately to take from God himself. He is Lord over all. Because he is maker of all, he is king and steward of all, and to steal is to live out Adam's life and lie, to deceive, to embody what it means to look like a son of Satan. So to say it then quite forcefully, stealing is satanic. If you want to know why God hates stealing, little kids, the devil steals. That's how he enters the story, as a thief. It's one of the names that Jesus even gives to Satan. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. I read from Ephesians 4 and stopped at verse 28. Uh, It's quite likely that when Paul uses the language, let the thief steal no longer, Uh, He's getting a two-for-one there. On the one hand, he's referring to people, uh, people in the Ephesian church who, rather than working, were stealing. And he's saying, knock it off. Let the one who does that no longer steal, but rather let him work hard with willing hands that he might not only be able to provide for himself, but in the abundance of his possessions, he might be able to share with anyone who has need. But in calling the person the thief, he's likely echoing a title of Satan himself. And the point would be, Satan is not only a thief, Satan is the chief example, par excellence. A person who steals is acting like Satan. A person who steals is manifesting their identity in the old Adam, the first man who in the Garden of Eden became a thief when he attempted to try to be like God in inappropriate ways and to dethrone God from God's throne. What are some, to be very practical about it, uh, what are some ways that you and I steal? Or attempted to steal, however you wish to put it. Well, here are just a few. Uh, The unlawful taking of someone's property. Little kids, if you go in your sibling's room and take their stuff, you know what you're doing? You're acting like Satan. Because that's what Satan does. And there are a lot of little kids in the room who are guilty of it. I have your attention, don't I? And grown-ups, we too can not only unlawfully take someone else's property, arguably one of the best ways, or that's not the best way to put it, uh, one of the most visible ways that we steal is in the waste of our time. 
I appreciate the way uh, that the catechism unpacks this language and refers to sloth as a form of stealing. When we go to work, we're paid to do work, not paid to be lazy. And when we're lazy and half-hearted in our work, we are stealing from the people that pay us to do our work. So not only is stealing uh, actively taking the property that belongs to another people, in a certain sense, it's failing to give what we've been paid to do. If we are paid to work and we waste our time, or we are lazy, in a certain sense, we are stealing. And there are all different ways that we can go about uh, manifesting the sin of stealing. But the bottom line is, with the point being somewhat fairly made, God hates all versions of stealing. He hates sloth, he hates waste, and he hates it when we take the possessions of other people. But if God hates stealing, what does he love? Now, I really want to drill down more in these next two points on the idea that God loves. For it's not uh, helpful enough to simply refer to this command in the negative to leave it there. There's a reason why God hates stealing, and it's because he loves giving. The main reason why God hates stealing, in a certain sense, is because he is by nature, in his person and in his work, a generous and giving God. God is the perfect opposite of Satan, or better put, uh, Satan is the opposite of God. If stealing is consistent with the person and work of Satan, giving is consistent with the person and the work of our God. If you think about it, everything that you know about God, you know because he gave it to you. And everything that you have in this life, you have because he gave it to you. And all the great things that you look forward to one day enjoying, if by his grace you you get there and you enjoy them, they will all be what? Gifts from his hand. All of creation is not only made by him, God creates and then he gives to his creation all the things that he needs. One of our favorite passages is when Jesus describes in Matthew 6 the reasons why we ought not to worry. And the reason we ought not to worry is because God provides all the things that his creation needs. Look at the birds, he says. How uh, they neither sow nor reap, Matthew 6, 26, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he asks this rhetorical question, are you not of more value than they? Why ought we not to be anxious? Because God will provide for our needs. Why do many people steal? Not only because they crave and covet, but because they fear at the end of the day that God will not be faithful to his promise and actually provide. It's what fuels anxiety as well as thievery. But he gives to the birds wind under them to help them fly. He gives to them food. He gives to them strength. How much more, beloved, will he not give to you all the things that you need. And let's make a distinction together between needing and wanting because perhaps this also gets at the root of the problem. God gives to man, God gives to us, God gives to you everything that you need. Do you believe that? He gives to you everything that you need. But now listen, this is not sleight of hand, it's an important distinction. While he gives to us everything that we need, He does not give to us everything that we want. And that becomes an occasion upon which we're tempted to steal. Why? Because we want what we want. Do you know what people tend to do? This is really deep. You know what people tend to do? 
People tend to do what they want to do. It keeps pastors in business. When people do what they want to do rather than what they ought to do. But have you thought about it like this? God does not give us everything that we want. He does give us everything that we need. But even when he withholds, that is his gift to you. Even when God is pleased to withhold the very things that he chooses to withhold from us, uh, that is a gift. Why? Because he knows what we need better than we actually do. And if we actually needed it, he would be pleased to give it. So even what he is pleased to withhold, in a manner of speaking, is actually a gift. But his gift, or gifts, ought not to be reduced to earthly things. God is a giver of great gifts. God is a giver of many gifts. God provides all of our earthly daily needs, but his giving, his heart, his generosity, is not simply seen in the birds and the sparrows or providing our daily bread. His real heart in giving is seen in the gospel itself. Where does God most and best manifest his generosity? Well, think for a little bit about uh, a verse like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. But isn't that really baffling when you pause and think about it? Because if it would be right to say uh, this world is filled with people who on the one hand bear the image of God, knowledge, righteousness, holiness, dominion over the creature, and at the same time, in our sinfulness, have manifested the image of our first father, Adam, and with him become liars, thieves, etc. Is it not an amazing thing that Jesus would enter into this world to give? And that the father would send his son into the world as a gift. And not to his friends, because he had none, but rather to his enemies. To say it differently, he entered into this world, Jesus entered into this world to give to those who stole. To me, that's rather remarkable. And when Jesus came into this world, although it was all rightfully his and being used and abused by those that were supposed to be stewards of it, grateful and thankful stewards, Jesus never stole. And not only did he never steal, to accent the negative side of the command, what did he do? Well, he positively speaking, he worked hard. He was never lazy. He never wasted his time. He was never slothful, and he was always generous. When he came to the end of his life, one of the last things that he said was, Father, I finished the work, not simply the mission, the work that you sent me to do. In other words, Nobody ever worked harder or better than Jesus. And that he came to do this work, not simply in obedience to his Father, but as a gift to us, ought to be something that we think about quite a while. God's ultimate gift to us is the gift of his Son. And the gift of his Son comes with additional gifts. The gift of pardon, the gift of peace, the gift of assurance, the gift of of heaven. In a certain sense, Jesus gave throughout the entirety of his life, and then he punctuated his gift that he would give to you, his people, by giving his life. We steal as though somehow 
that will enhance our life if we just have these things that we want so desperately. Jesus did the very opposite. He gave of his life throughout his life, and then he gave up his life at the end. And how poetic is the punctuation of his great gift to us. Have you ever thought about who Jesus is crucified between in relationship to this commandment? That he should be crucified between two thieves. There he is. The son of God who gave his life every day until the day he gave his life away. There he is, the gift of the Father that the Father sends into this world that is lied and stolen from him since the very beginning. And there is the Son of God crucified rather fittingly between two robbers. And to one of them, even that very day, he gave the gift of life and forgiveness to a repentant, believing thief Jesus says, you will be with me even this day in paradise. And so on the one hand, you want the bad news? If I were to ask for a show of hands in here, how many thieves are there? The answer would be as many bodies as there are. Because we've all stolen in one fashion or another. And arguably, it's one of the sins we are most guilty of week by week in one fashion or another. And at the same time, God's response to our thievery was to give. He gave his son, and the son gave his life, that we might be given forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. If I began the sermon by saying, or telling the story of the two greatest human heists in history, arguably uh, one of the greatest heists was at the cross. But that great heist, where Satan once more tried to dethrone our God in heaven, and man once more tried to usurp the Son of God, as Scripture says elsewhere, we would. God continued to give. And so we ought to think not about the greatest heist, the greatest moments of thievery in history, but rather about the greatest moment of giving. For at the cross, beloved, that was, in history, the most generous moment of giving that one will ever see, that one will ever encounter. The Father gave His Son The Son gave His life. And as a result of the Son giving His life, what happens now? The Father and the Son give their Spirit. And the Spirit gives you freely in Christ all things. Do you know what you have? Everything you need. Do you know what you lack? Nothing that God believes you need. And that brings us to our third and final point. Why God loves a cheerful giver. Would you think it's overstatement if I said to you that the essence of the Christian life is found in giving? In many ways it is. The essence of the gospel is that God gave. The essence of the Christian life arguably is found in giving. Giving is in the heart of God himself, and that is why giving should be in the heart of God's people. <clears throat> Christians should be known, and thankfully are known, as the most generous people on the planet. I'll give you two, two illustrations why. Uh, one is, we've all seen countless homeless people standing on, signs, standing on the side of the road. And, and what do about 50% of them have on the bottom of their signs? God bless you. Is that because they're Christians? Or is it because they 
know who to, who to ask. Christians have the reputation for being generous people. <clears throat> Two years ago, perhaps, I may have used this illustration before, but there's one book uh, from an early church historian who argues that the reason why Christianity spread so wide, so far, and so fast is because when the Roman soldiers went city to city, place to place, and, and ravaged and stole and pillaged, Christians would follow behind them almost like ambulance drivers, staying a distance behind the Roman soldiers, and they would enter into these cities, and they would particularly pick up orphan children and give them homes and give them life. And this scholar, PhD in church, early church history, argues that that's one of the main reasons why Christianity spread is that when the Romans came through and killed the adults but left children and threw them on dunghills, Christians came behind, picked them up, adopted them, gave them life, gave them home, taught them the truth, and that's how Christianity spread so fast in the first century. It's at least worth thinking about. <clears throat> but you do not argue with me that the opposite of stealing is giving. It's very easy to understand how we ought to end, not simply thinking about refraining from stealing, but actively and wholeheartedly giving. God's gift to us becomes the paradigm of our lives. If it's right to say that God looked out for us, we ought to look out for others. If it's right to say Jesus worked hard for us, we ought to work hard as unto God, and even as the Heidelberg reminded us, and Ephesians 4 reminds us that we might have even an abundance, not only having the things that we need, but having an abundance in such a way that we can actually give to other people out of our abundance. And that we ought to work hard and not waste our time, not waste our talent, not waste our treasure. Do you know every person in this room has three things in one question? And the three things that we all have are time, talent, and treasure. And the one question we have is how will we use them? Will we use them generously for the glory of God or selfishly for our own glory? Will we waste and squander them, rushing quickly to our own pleasures? Or will we cultivate and nourish them as though they were means to really give glory and honor to God through them? On this topic, 1 Corinthians 13 makes a very important point. Giving can be empty. I can give away all my goods, and I can give away even my life, but if I have not love, my giving is but a fleeting vapor, empty and vain. Here's the point. <clears throat> even the right things can be done for the wrong reasons, including giving. Some people give so that other people will see. Some people give so as to receive the approval, the praise, the applause of man. But our giving, beloved, ought to be done in such a way that whether anyone ever thanks us, it doesn't matter. It's God who sees, and ultimately our giving is done so that God himself gets the glory. This is why uh, scripture says God doesn't simply love giving, but he says, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. It's one of those verses, if you weren't careful, you could almost wonder if it actually is in the Bible. But it is. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Why do we give cheerfully? Because God has not only provided for us everything that we need, he has made us glad. He has made us glad. He has made us thankful and happy in the gospel itself. And then above and beyond that, he gives us all the things that we need for life in this world. Our giving must be done in love, recognizing that we give because God has first given to us both materially and spiritually. Giving and generous giving really is the essence of the Christian life because it derives from the person and work of a generous God. Let's pray together. Our generous God in heaven, we thank you for all that you have entrusted to us. Time, talent, and treasure. We thank you that you are such a good father. You do not say yes to us. You do not give us everything that we ask for. For if you were to do so, we know that we would become like spoiled little children. And that we would squander so many of these things. In fact, uh, too easily good gifts from your hands can become an idol to us if we are not careful. But we thank you, Lord, for all that you've been pleased to give. We thank you for your wisdom regarding those things that you've been pleased to withhold. And we know that it is in our nature, the old man within us, to desire things in covetous ways and to reach out and take that which is not rightfully ours. And so we pray not only that you would forgive us in our moments of thievery and that you would restrain us from stealing from you or others, we pray, Lord, that you would grant us generous hearts that we would recognize that all that we have, we truly have received as a gift from your hand, and all of it ultimately is yours. So Lord, help us to work hard. Help us to not be lazy. Help us to have regard not only for our own lives, but for the lives of other people. But help us to be good stewards of our time, our talent, and our treasure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.